You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Today's guest is Jenny Orndaugh. Jenny joined the Coast Guard at 18 and she turned 19 while at boot camp. She was a chef, first stationed on a cutter, which is a Coast Guard commissioned vessel in San Diego. And she also went to South and Central America doing drug and migration interdiction. And she was also stationed at Cape Cod. Welcome, Jenny. Hello. I'm excited to learn more about your experience being in the Coast Guard because I haven't talked to anyone about that yet. Well, we are the smallest service, so, you know, <laughs> people forget we're actually part of the military. Yeah. You know, until there's a hurricane or something. I think a lot of people don't really know what the Coast Guard does. Well, and to be honest, I didn't know either, really, until I got into it. I was like, oh, okay, yes. I didn't know we did all this. <laughs> so it was a pleasant surprise. So we'll get to learn a little bit more about the Coast Guard, which is great. So I'm just going to start with why did you decide to join the Coast Guard? Well, I knew from a young age that I wanted to join the military. One of my great uncles and one of my uncles was in the Air Force. One was officer, one was enlisted. And when I was, I don't know, about middle school, beginning of high school, you know, they always come to the schools and do the um, like job fair type things. And I was like, oh. Every branch was there, except for the Coast Guard, which I had no clue about, you know, that time. And it turned into, I wanted to go to culinary school, but I also wanted to serve my country. And I wanted to do something different, because I didn't want to be just on a mass scale. I wanted to be able to stay closer to home and do more of an impact right here in our own country versus being, you know, deployed to the Middle East or stationed in Germany or, you know, Japan or wherever. But my stepmom was the one that actually came up with the Coast Guard idea. And we did not have a recruiter in Kentucky, so the recruiter from Tennessee had to drive up. But, you know, I just I knew from a young age that I wanted to do more. I didn't want to just go to school and work. I've always had a drive to serve. And the military gave me that option. So yeah, That sounds like a great reason to decide to join the military. And when the recruiter drove up from so Tennessee... Yes. How did that kind of cement that you were going to do Coast Guard over the other branches? Well, I really, I've been taking culinary classes and competing in culinary competitions since my freshman year of high school. I've been cooking since I was eight. And the Coast Guard being smaller, even when you're on the cutter and, you know, there's 175 plus people, you're not cooking in giant mass quantities. You know, so it's like you could still, it wasn't all about getting the food out, you know, just to feed people. It was, you know. You could more like a home cook type deal. It wasn't just throwing food out on the table for child time and, you know, trying to feed a thousand people. Yeah, that makes that makes sense because the MREs are like the mass foods that we had overseas. Well, yeah. Like heated up plastic bags of food. It wasn't cold. Well and, well, and you know, like on the Navy ships, you know, you're on a carrier, you've got four or five thousand people. So it's like you could literally spend a whole day just peeling potatoes. You know, that could be, that was... <laughs> Right. That was your job, or cutting up vegetables for a salad, or, you know, so you were feeding that many people. With the Coast Guard, when we were on the cutter, we were in um, two-man duty partners, and you weren't spending seven hours peeling potatoes. So, you know, there was two of you, and you literally, you cooked every single meal. So, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but 
Yeah, it does. I didn't want to go to culinary school and, you know, just make mashed potatoes or cut up 70 million pounds of lettuce. Well, in a lot of the Army and, you know, the Marine Corps, they do a lot more MREs, you know, just, or, you know, heat and serve type things. Because when you're in the field, you're in the field. I mean, obviously, you can't you know, carry a giant freezer and refrigerator with you when you're in the middle of the desert. So So when you were on the cutter, were you out at sea for extended periods of time or did you, how did that work? Well, we had a sister ship stationed with us in San Diego and we were gone for about three or three and a half months, every three or three and a half months, just depending on missions and, you know, what we were up to and what our sister ship was up for or, you know, I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's only three months. Well, yeah, but it's three months on a 378-foot ship. It's not three months on a carrier. It was good, though. I mean, we had a helicopter, of course, attached to our ship to do the law enforcement side, and it was an interesting experience. I'll never forget my first sunrise and sunset at sea. It was amazing. You can't. I mean, there's nothing that can replace that. So what did your ship do while you were out at sea for the three months? Did you... Is that how you ended up in South and Central America? Yeah. Yes. We would go to, um, we worked off the coast of Mexico and South and Central America. I've been as far south as Peru. And we worked with joint agencies to collect intel with other countries because how a lot of the drug runners get the drugs to the states is they pile in the cocaine or the marijuana into these small boats, but they have like four or five outboard engines. So they're going extremely fast and we call them go fast boats and with the intel coming from all the other agencies plus you know our own intel we would monitor in a certain area and if somebody picked up a target we would divert from like our box operations you know we were just sailing around in a box looking for stuff and we would divert and go and chase this go fast boat so you know it would be two hours or there was one day we chased the boat for three days and it was extremely tiring but we were all running on adrenaline. And I should remember that day because I made donuts from scratch and fed everybody just to keep morale up. But, you know, you're really making an impact by getting all of these drugs that aren't reaching the shore, you know, that aren't reaching our families, aren't reaching your kids. To me, that was one of the biggest reasons to join the Coast Guard was I'm making a huge impact at home. Not that, you know, everybody that deploys and all the other branches isn't making a huge impact at home. But it was more of just an instant gratification type of thing. Like, okay, we did this and we stopped it and we're good to go. It's easier to see the results, like, because they're instant instead of, well, we did this and then 10 years later that will help this. And so. Exactly. It was eye-opening. It was a bittersweet type thing because you, you know, you caught these drugs and you kept them from getting, you know, to the states. But at the same time, you know, the people that the cartels and whatnot have running these boats, you know, they're not, they're just doing it so they can try to support their family. It's not, you know, they're from very poor countries and, you know, they may get paid anywhere from five to $15,000, you know, if they get this shipment, you know, to the next destination. But the sad thing is when we catch them, we don't know what happens to their family because they got caught, you know? So that's kind of like the bittersweet of it. You're like, yes, we stopped this, but oh no, what did, you know, yes, we did our jobs and we stopped it from getting to the States, but what did it cost their family? I think that's a side of things that a lot of people don't think about because they're like, yes, we stopped them from doing a bad thing, but they may not have had this option to not do this bad thing. And I think that's what a lot of people, you know, when it comes to the war on drugs or even the war on terrorism, 
there are a lot of these people that are kind of forced into doing what they're doing because it's a survival thing. That but, is very true. Yes. You know, and Floyd, the engineers that we worked with, they wanted to interrogate them and like learn more about their, and they were like, we think they have ties to the Taliban. I was like, well, they don't live on a base, you know, like. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> like, they have to survive once they go off the base. In <laughs> I'm sure they have some sort of ties, but they're just trying to survive. Well, yeah. And it's like, you know, when you fill out a job application, does any of your family work at this location you know does any of your family work for this company well yeah i don't know them but they work and you know i think that's what a lot of people don't understand is you know like you said they have to survive outside the base you know you don't always have a choice and we don't get to pick our family and they really don't get to pick theirs either so you know we've all got that one uncle that we wish just wouldn't talk but you're still family so you're like sorry so it was um, kind of an eye-opening experience to learn more about what was going on it was and you know i think that the biggest impact or like aha moment that opened my eyes up to the world outside of you know the u.s and you know first world problems one of my first deployments we stopped a group of migrants, which they're, they're migrants that they're coming in, they're immigrants if they make it to the States. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. You see people coming over, you know, you have the coyotes to bring in these people across the desert and whatnot. Well, we stopped a boat that was dead in the water, which means they had no fuel. They were just stuck there. And there was probably 150 people on this small boat with, you know, two coyotes that have paid them you know, the migrants who paid the coyotes, you know, maybe their entire life savings to just try to get to the United States to have a better life. And we would rescue them and we'd have to keep them quarantined, of course, because, you know, security and all that jazz. You know, when when you're 19 years old and you come from a first world country where, you know, you're complaining because you've got sneakers at Walmart or, you know, mom has to shop at Aldi's or whatever. But then I looked at these people who literally gave up everything they had to try to make it to the States. And I remember there was a woman who was nine months pregnant, like going to have a baby like any time now. And she was praying that she'd have the baby on the boat, on the ship, on the Coast Guard Cutter, because it's considered, in a way, U.S. soil. You know, I mean, and just seeing her and seeing that look in her eyes when she's just trying to give herself a better life, a safer life for her child. You know, at 19 years old, that's an eye-opening experience. I mean, because they've been in the water, you know, without food or water, you know, for days when we got there. Yeah, that's... Yeah, so, you know, it's like, wow, this is outside of our world. And I think that so many of us, you know, be it our generation or, you know, the generation coming up, I think we live in like this bubble to where we don't see outside of it. You know, we kind of know stuff is going on, but like until you see it and you make that impact and you're like, wow, this is what's really happening. They get, well, not to get too political here, but you know, I have a really hard time when people, you know, ask me about my opinion on immigration and I'm like, I, I have a different view. I see both sides, you know, because I've seen where those people come from. I've rescued those people trying to get here and I've had to send them back because while I understand, you know, they want a better life, there's no right way and a wrong way to go about it, but that doesn't change the sorrow that I feel for them and their situation, you know, because you're just, they're not any different than us. You know, moms and dads are just trying to give their kids a better life. Yes. But, you know, that was, that was a lot to, you know, and this was all in my first year. So I'm like, what in the world? Like so much at, at one time. They're like, okay, whew, I learned a lot of lessons. Wow. That's quite the experience. And 
hearing these stories helps people to learn a different perspective and to hear something, not just someone talking, but someone explaining like what their experience was. And so thank you for sharing that. I think people will find that really interesting and maybe they'll do more research about what's going on. Well, you know, if people would just listen, just take a minute and listen. <laughs> It's, we don't have to agree, but, you know, I'm going to give you a real world perspective. And I think that's what a lot of people are missing. You know, it's on TV, it's on the internet, it's on Facebook. It's take the time to meet these people and hear their stories. So did you face any other struggles while serving in the military? I think my biggest, my biggest struggle was just being female, you know, proving to everybody that I can do what you can do. You know, I'm not weak. I'm not incompetent. And you, you have to face the double standards if you're a firm leader and, you know, you stand up for yourself. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, now you're, now you're, you know, a B-I-T-C-H. I don't want to cuss if, you know, I can't cuss. But, but, you know, it's like, so wait, because I'm strong and I'm independent, I'm a bitch because I'm a female. Okay, but if a man does it, wow, they're a great leader. It's a strong, you know, you know, it's a strong person. And, you know, I dealt with, that's so uh, and it is. I mean, but it's like so. So because I stand up for myself, and you know, I stand my ground, and I demand the same respect from my, you know, subordinates as a male would, and I give the same amount of respect to my, you know, upper chain of command that you know. But I think a lot of it. I mean, I remember when I first reported to the ship in San Diego. Within three weeks, there was a bet going on that I would end up married and pregnant in the first year, and I'm like, no. Because, you know, I mean, I'm from a small town. Of course, uh, my accent was crazy Southern. And they were just like, I will end up married. And I'm like, why? They're like, oh, because you're a girl. And I'm like, so what? Hold on. <laughs> I have to. I went through the same boot camp as you did. I'm, I'm your equal. And there was a lot of it that was not. Um, and I think you have to deal with the stereotypes of not only being, you know, a stuck-up bitch, but you also get, oh, well, you're sleeping with everybody. And I was like, what? I'm not sleeping with anybody. But I think the biggest thing was that I'm a military sexual trauma survivor. And what had happened was I had taken a friend to the barracks because I had lived off base at the time. And I changed clothes to get ready to go out. And there were other people in her barracks room, all people I was stationed with, which is not a big deal. You know, we're all family. One of the guys kept trying to grab me. You know, grab at my crotch and grab at my chest. And I was like, you know, stop. You know, just, just stop. Well, I tried to leave, and he followed me down 12 floors on the elevator, and he followed me out to my car. The only way I was able to get away was I grew up on a farm, so I can handle a two-ton animal. So I shoved him out of the way, and I got in my car. And I didn't say anything to anybody for a long time because I was like, oh, my gosh, what did I do? It's my fault. I did this. And then my, my chief and my second class at the time, were really just, I was getting written up. My performance was terrible, and it wasn't like me. But when they wrote me up to counsel me, I, I just broke, I fell apart. I mean, the tears, the anxiety, I hadn't been sleeping. I mean, looking back, I know it's PTSD. But, you know, you're 19. <laughs> what do you think? I was fine with just my immediate supervisor. You know, they said, what do you want to do? Do you want us to handle it or do you want to, you know, take it further? And I said, just you guys handle it. I don't want to make a big deal out of this. I did not want to deal with it all coming out. Well, my female E6 ran straight to the captain, didn't talk to me, didn't ask me what I wanted. And it turned into a huge 
uproar investigation and, you know, they asked me what I was wearing because, you know, that's important. What did I say to him? How did I act? Did I encourage him? I'm like, no. And apparently during the investigation, people told them that I was sleeping with everybody. And I was like, wow, it's funny because I'm not actually sleeping with anybody on this shit because I don't mix work and fun. You know, I remember talking to my captain and having a meeting up there with them, with my CO and my XO and my supply officer and my chief in my first class. And my captain said, well, if you would have let him rape you, then I could help you. But since you stopped him, there's nothing I can do. Wow. Yeah. That's horrible. It is. I mean, and I was trying to go off base to get counseling at a local rape crisis center. When I was supposed to leave for my appointment, I would leave and then they would find something wrong with the galley that I needed to come back and fix. You know, they didn't like the fact that I was going to a civilian place. And one time they even called the crisis center to see if I was there. And of course, you know, that's, they're not going to tell you if I'm there. It's a confidentiality thing, especially right. when you're in a rape crisis center. And then when I got back to work the next day, they're like, well, we tried to call and see if you were there and they wouldn't tell us. And I'm like, well, they're not going to. But, you know, the option they gave me was I could leave the ship and go to my sister ship. So I was like, I was the victim and I have to leave and go to a completely new, no. You know, the guy was underage and he was drinking. He was, um, I think he was an E2 or an E3 at that point. I'm not really sure. I don't remember. But I went on deployment with him. And, you know, it's a small, small ship, you know, football field. And everybody was like, I can't believe you've ruined his career. You're such a whore. You're such a bitch. Are you trying to ruin his career? Ruin his life? And I was like, well, what about what you're ruining for me? You know, and it was just really, it was a crazy time. And like I said, looking back, I know it was PTSD, but I remember not sleeping and being afraid and being jumpy and, you know, constantly having panic attacks and not understanding what was happening because I was just supposed to get over it, you know, man up and get through it. Nothing happened. And they never prosecuted him for the assault. It was a, it was a rough deployment. And then when I got back, I tried to get help again and they wouldn't let me go. The command wouldn't, nobody wanted to talk about it. It was just swept under the rug. It was over. And I remember going to a meeting with my chain of command and, you know, I had three letters written out. Um, of course, I come from a small town, so we had a parade every year, and one of my state representatives always rode in one of my dad's classic cars. We had a small local newspaper, and then I had written a letter, you know, to the Oprah, Oprah Winfrey Show. And I sat down with him, and I said, I need to get help, and you're going to let me get help. I said, here's three letters, and I told them who they were to. And they said, well, what if we take them? And I said, that's fine. There's other copies. I said, so I can either get the help I need or this is going to blow up. And I know it sounds like blackmail, but I was desperate. And, you know, I was able to get off the ship and I went to our local sector and worked underneath an amazing female commander and eventually worked with um, two of my best friends that are like my brothers now, which oddly enough that they were, you know, male and I was their sexual assault. But... <laughs> You know, they kind of gave me the, they kind of gave me the hope that I could trust men again. So it was, it was weird how, you know, you come from, you're, you're not running away. You're trying to figure out and understand why this man did this to you. And two of the people that are helping you work through it the most are two men that I didn't know, you know, at all. But I've been able 
to fight through it and survive. I don't refer to myself as a victim. I'm a survivor. And by telling my story, I have helped other women have the courage to stand up for themselves and talk about it. And not just on the military sexual trauma front. In the civilian front now, I mean, 15 years later, I tell my story and, you know, there's other women and some men, you know, that have been victims that are like, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Because if you made it through all of that, I can too. You've given me hope. Yeah, it's great that you're willing to share your experience because I know it can't be easy to talk about it. And I know it will help people to hear your experience. It's not easy. And to be honest, my family doesn't always like that I'm so vocal about it. But, um, you know, I just, I have the feeling that, you know, the, what is it, the squeaky wheel gets the grease? You know, if you talk about it, then people can't ignore it. People can't forget about it. It's in your face. I'm a real person. Yes. With a real story. Yeah, it's not just someone out there, someone that you're actually talking to. And yeah, I think that changes everything because when you don't really know the person or you don't hear the emotion behind the story and it's just the media talking, it doesn't have the same impact. That's very true. I mean, you know, when you can read something on the screen, it's not the same as hearing it. You know, it's been... It's been an amazing experience. I was actually medically retired in 2008 because of my PTSD, because I just couldn't hold it in any longer. And that was a struggle for me. I felt like I had failed, which I didn't fail. I just needed help. But, you know, and I got out and I kept my benefits, thankfully. But I've gone on to, you know, work with other people. And I have an amazing service dog that I trained through a program in California named Shadow. He's a black labradoodle. And um, I did a program called Owner Training because I couldn't afford $15,000 for a service dog. And um, he's been a lifesaver. And, you know, I don't take anxiety medicine, and I take very little sleep medicine now, and I'm not afraid to go out by myself because I look at his body language. You know, if I'm nervous and he's not, I'm like, okay, I just need to chill. (laughs) You know, if if he doesn't want to go a certain way, then we don't go. But by doing that and sharing my story, I now work with other veterans to find and train their service dogs. I um, do a lot of service dog advocacy work. Um, Two years ago, Shadow and I were kicked out of a Burger King in Smyrna, Tennessee. It was all over the news. We had the cops called on us. But that has given me what I call a different way to serve. It's because I don't know about you, but I know when I left active duty, I was lost. I was like, I need a purpose. Just going to work nine to five every day was not going to cut it for me. (laughs) That was not, it was never my Never my deal. I worked with a singer-songwriter at the VA in Nashville because, you know, country music capital of the world. So, and I actually worked with her and wrote a song. You know, it's called A Different Way to Serve. I look at people who look at veterans, especially female veterans. And, you know, I still get asked at the VA if I'm checking my husband in. I'm like, I'm not married. I'm the veteran. You know, so it's for, you know, when I get out of my car because I have um, disabled veteran tags. And I have people come up and tell me I should be ashamed of myself for using my grandfather's disabled veteran tag. I'm like, what? I, I think I think the world has a hard time remembering that women were on active duty and women are veterans too. And we all aren't short hair, you know, manly looking. We don't fit into a type, but it's, you know, it's interesting. So what was the hard, I mean, obviously the assault was difficult, but having, not having the support of your commanders and your leadership, did that make it worse? 
It does. And I tell, you know, I'll tell a lot of people that the trauma that came from how it was handled and or not handled and the way I was treated by my command is sometimes a lot worse than the actual assault. Because here are these men, because they were all men, that are supposed to protect you and have your back and, you know, you're supposed to lean on your chain of command and trust them. And nobody did any of that for me. You know, I was completely just on my own. And there's a lot of times that, you know, I have more, I would say, issues or, you know, trust issues about men and positions of authority because I'm afraid they're going to hurt me by not protecting me. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Because when I was deployed, there were people on our team who went behind each other's backs and they were the people that were supposed to be protecting and encouraging and they were the ones who were like emotionally hurting and making it and that's most of what the trauma I deal with from my deployment is the things that happen not off base but on base but on base you know with everything that happened I went back to the ship after I left sector on our first deployment back out again we were in Costa Rica of course travel with buddies you don't ever get in a cab by yourself Especially if you're blonde hair, blue eyed, white girl in the middle of Central America. But anyway, I was getting ready to go back to the ship and there were a couple of guys that were going to the bar, but the ship was on the way. And I said, oh, can I ride with you? And they're like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Now, these guys were friends of the guy who had assaulted me, been horrible to me in the process. But when I came back, I decided clean slate for a start. But the hotel had already called my cab. And when my cab driver pulled up, I said I was going with, you know, the guys from the ship. And he tried, the cab driver tried to pull me into his car. And I remember those guys pulling me away from him, telling me to get in the back seat of the other cab and beating the snot out of that cab driver. So in a way, it was like, you do have my back. We're not best friends. You don't like me, you know, but we're still my brothers. And I think it's just a way to come full circle with it because a lot of the way that it was handled poorly was by the command. I had no issues with people when I went back under a new command. And I think this just shows you how toxic leadership can ruin a unit. But, you know, people always ask me if you knew what was going to happen, would you do it again? Absolutely. I'm a stronger person. I didn't realize how strong I was until it was my only option. I loved what I did. Yeah. You loved being a chef and being on the ship. Oh, yeah. It was it was an amazing experience. I mean, I remember being in Peru and going on a tour of the Incan ruins and, you know, standing there where they did a human sacrifice. And I'm like, well, that's kind of creepy. You know, I, I got to see these things, you know, that you read about in your history books. You know, the Panama Canal and you're going in the rainforest and you just, as a kid, you know, you're like, wow, that's awesome. But I never thought that I would be standing at the Panama Canal or at the Incan ruins or talking to an alpaca. It was a amazing experience all the way around with just a couple of bumps in the road. That's good to hear. I'm glad that overall you had a good experience, even with challenges that you had to face. I really appreciate <laughs> you taking time out of your day to share your story and just to let people know the truth about what sometimes happens in the military. I appreciate that you do these interviews and do and working on this series because, you know, like you said earlier, to actually hear it and hear someone's story, that's what will make change happen. I agree. So I don't have any more questions. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that I missed from the... You know, I would really just say to, you know, the young women who are looking to join, 
just be true to yourself because at the end of the day, people can say what they want to say, but you in your heart know what you did and didn't do. And as hard as it is to turn your back on people or just let things roll off your back, I know it's hard, but pick your battles. That's great advice. I like it. It seems general, but you know, you, you can't fight every battle. Yeah, thanks again for your time. And I'll put some links to some of the resources that she mentioned so that okay. you in the show notes for the website. So that way, if people want to learn more about anything about the episode that you mentioned, we can direct them to the right place. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it and I've enjoyed it. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in the military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served in the military or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmentomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.